What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. In this conversation, I talked to Jonathan Bai and David Perel. We spent a lot of time unpacking Rene Girard, his ideas, and how they relate to society today. David and Jonathan have done a ton of work on Girard and those ideas, and I really enjoyed listening to a bunch of the work that they've done. In this conversation, we try to unpack some of the ideas and why it's important to you and your life. I really hope that you enjoyed this conversation, as I did. Before we get into this episode, though, I first want to talk to our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Bullish. Bullish has reinvented the digital asset exchange. They give you access to DeFi features like automated market making and liquidity pools all in a regulated environment. It's a whole new way to generate alpha. Seems like something that game changing should be making some noise, right? Well, bang, bang, it is. Bullish's total trading volumes have exceeded $25 billion just seven months since it launched in November. And in May, they exceeded $2 billion in total daily trading volumes for the first time. It's obviously massive. So why all the traction? Well, get this. Bullish offers the deepest liquidity on the planet for the Bitcoin to USD market. That's right, deeper than any other exchange in the world, according to Bullish. With a recent upgrade, introducing range-bound liquidity to its hybrid order book, Bullish has tripled order book depth for BTC USD trading pairs, and it measured by bids and offers within 2% of the market price. This industry-leading order depth means you can trade confidently when you want, at scale, with better pricing and lower risk, all within a regulated market environment. Good reasons to be bullish. Learn more at bullish.com slash pomp and follow at bullish on Twitter today. Bullish is licensed by the Gibraltar Financial Services Commission. Virtual assets and related products are high risk. Consult your investment advisor and trade responsibly. Bullish is available in select locations only and not to U.S. persons. Visit bullish.com slash legal for more important information and risk warnings. This episode is brought to you by Unstoppable Domains. They recently launched an awesome feature to level up your Unstoppable Domains profile. It's called Badges. They translate wallet activity into achievements, so celebrating, reliving, and sharing your crypto story has never been easier. Before, these stories were buried in transaction logs that were hard to read, making them difficult to find and understand as well. But since Unstoppable Domain Badges are awarded based on your wallet activity, they're a super fun, easy way to build on-chain reputation just by doing what you do, like supporting NFT projects, collecting domains, or holding crypto. Unstoppable domain owners can activate badges from their account profile page right now. If you haven't minted an NFT domain yet, go to unstoppabledomains.com right now to own your name, starting as low as $5. Again, head over to unstoppabledomains.com right now to get started. This episode is brought to you by 8sleep. 8sleep is the single best product that I have purchased over the last three years. It completely changed my life. I'm not joking. Pay attention. The Pod Pro cover, which goes over your mattress by 8sleep, is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. You can go to 8sleep.com slash pomp to check out the Pod Pro cover, and you save $150 at checkout. They currently ship within the United States, Canada, and the UK. Now, I told you, it changed my life. It helps me sleep deeper, helps me sleep longer. I feel much more refreshed, and I have better energy. You want to know how I have relentless energy every single day? Because I sleep on an 8sleep. Seriously, go check it out, 8sleep.com slash pomp today. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Jonathan, David, how are you guys? What's up? How are you? Doing well. 
All right, here's where I want to start. Uh, David, let's start with you. You wrote a piece on Peter Thiel and religion uh, a couple years ago. And I think that's really where you first intersected with Rene Girard and a lot of his ideas. Explain a little bit like that piece and how did you have uh, come to cross these ideas and, and uh, Girard himself? Yeah, so I think that one of the things that really surprised me was, so I grew up Jewish and just from a really, really young age, I was just like, these ideas are nonsense for the Hebrew school, Judaic school. And it was even bar mitzvah. And through college, I really doubted the validity of any religious ideas whatsoever, you know, pro-rationality, all these sorts of things. And then I was really into actually really feeling like I wasn't going to be able to contribute because I didn't have the STEM education, all this sort of nonsense. And I came across Peter Thiel's ideas. They're really interesting to me from an investment perspective, but more from just a philosophy of life standpoint mainly the idea of look up, not around, you know, this idea of don't be so influenced by what your peers are doing. I've been copying other people so much in terms of thinking through what I wanted out of life. And once I found Peter, it became not just a way of thinking about investing, but a way of thinking about, about many different facets of my life. But as I began to study his ideas, I realized that they came from Gerard and then even deeper came from the Bible. And that was like, sort of like, what are those quake ideas for me where my world was turned upside down? I was like, okay, what's going on here? Something about my understanding of the world is fundamentally flawed. So when you start to think about this, Jonathan, what brought you to Gerard? Like what, why is this such a fascinating person and set of ideas? Well, very much like David, I think I grew up in a very you know, rationalistic worldview as well. You know, I was tra trained in STEM and, <coughs> excuse me, mathematics growing up and uh, began my college career studying CS uh, and I think what Gerard does is show us the fundamental uh, limitations, if you will, uh, of rationality. And he doesn't treat us as rational, utility-maximizing utility creatures, but rather these spirited animals. What matters most to us uh, aren't sort of optimizing for the amount of cheap goods we can get at a dollar store, but more so, uh, you know, relativistic comparison and the social goods, such as glory uh, or, or prestige or, or recognition. And I think it's that more accurate uh, model of human nature that really drew me in, that helped me uh, unravel myself um, through, through some of the mimetic webs I was tangled in, uh, and eventually, uh, you know, ends up helping one navigate uh, in the business world and uh, in the world uh, in general as well. So, Jonathan, when, when you think about Gerard and these ideas, like if you had to describe to a five-year-old, right, hey, here's the basics of his viewpoint of the world, like how would you describe that? Yeah, I think the psychology is probably most re relevant for this audience, although there's also the history and the, and the theology. Uh, the, the TLDR is that, you know, we, uh, there's really two reasons that we desire things. One he calls physical desire, and that's a desire for the object itself. And that's the re reason that people are going to give you when you ask them, why do you want to date this person? Why do you want to buy this car? Oh, you know, she's very uh, nice and, and smart, or, you know, this car has all these gas mileage. Uh, and then there's the other strand of desire is metaphysical desire. And that's a desire to be. It's what those objects say about us. And Gerard's fundamental insight is that often when we try to convince others and even ourselves that we are motivated by the objects themselves, what we really want is to acquire the object because it says something about us that we really like um, more often than not, because it's associated with, uh, with, with someone very prestigious. Yeah. One of the things I would add here is that if you look at, you know, 
three and four year olds and they're just playing around in a room, there'll be a bunch of toys, toys all over the place. And one of the kids will pick up a toy and dangle it and say, this is the coolest toy. And then all of a sudden, the other kids in the room will want that toy. Not because there was anything that was intrinsically way better about that toy, but the fact that a bunch of other people want it. And that story is a really good gateway into Gerard's philosophy and the nature of desire itself. Yeah, and, and maybe a few more examples here. You know, one is, you know, we, we're building a company right now in private markets. And, and as you probably know, Anthony, uh, in private markets, uh, the, the, the best way to sort of sell your product, uh, or, or a common way at least, is to create demand and scarcity for it, right? Uh, one of my friends, they, they run like VC firms and the, the founders that they most want to get into are always the one that say, oh, you know, we're, we're pretty tight on this round, you know, but, but, but you know, send us a term sheet. We might, might, might be able to slide you in um, because they're creating this sort of uh, external hypothetical desire for them, for them to imitate. And you see this in dating as well, right? You know, an unattractive uh, or, or uninteresting prospect. Once you know that, oh, damn, you know, Brad Pitt used to date her or, 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 someone, or someone like that. A very, when a very competitive model comes along uh, and also shows his desire uh, for, for the mate, then suddenly that prospect can, can gain a, a new allure of, of, of interestingness. How do these ideas um, kind of intersect with business and entrepreneurship? Like both of you I know uh, are very interested in that uh, industry and, and spend most of your time thinking about uh, kind of building businesses, participating in them. Uh, what were your takeaways after kind of doing this huge deep dive on Gerard? David, I'll, I'll let you go first because I have a pretty long spiel here. So, Yeah, for me, I've thought a lot about prestige, you know. So when I got my first job, I was working at this fancy New York advertising agency and it was like, oh my goodness, this is incredible. And what I think is something that you always want to be thinking about is how much of what I'm doing is influenced by prestige. What's cool, what's gonna basically get Auntie Sue to say, wow, David, you're up to some really cool things at Thanksgiving every year. And studying Gerard forced me to investigate a lot of my choices. And now I spend my time basically in education and online education, which is like one of my deep passions. And I still think it's very underestimated in terms of how important and transformative it's gonna be and I think that if I cared as much about prestige now as I did five years ago, I would be working maybe in Web3 or something more prestigious than running a writing school. And a lot of people, you know, make fun of online courses. But fundamentally, I think a lot of the reason that I've been able to persist in a state where, you know, right of passage is just small is because I've seen how much prestige influences people's careers. I've studied different companies and I've seen how, you know, they're in the garage. It's not very, it's not very cool. It's now become cooler, but back then it was like, oh, what are we doing with our lives? But like you keep on marching on, keep on moving forward for what you believe in. And I think, look, I'm not saying that once you know mimetic theory, you stop being mimetic. That's not my point at all. But it at least gives you a sense of awareness of just how socially determined a lot of your choices were. And slowly but surely, you can crawl away from that social determinism. Yeah, it's fascinating to kind of think of it from that perspective. Jonathan, what about you? Yeah, I, as always, I'm going to give the more theoretical and boring answer. And I think we, we have to start off with understanding uh, sort of this Copernican shift that Gerard introduces uh, in, in political economy. So unlike the traditional model of what we think uh, motivates actors in capitalism, in industry, 
Um, and, you know, you know, Smith, you know, it's, it's, it's a sort of like desire for, for, for more goods or a fundamental self-interest. Gerard says, you know, capitalistic actors, they're certainly not motivated by these altruistic goals of trying to save the world. They're not even motivated by sort of raw money and goods. What they're really motivated is the same desires uh, that motivated the, the conquistadors and the, and the warriors and the aristocracy of old. One line that he had in his last book was, you know, it's, it's a little wonder that as soon as warriors and heroes went out of style, the European aristocracy soon found itself so at home in the, in the domains of business. And so, uh, you know, what, what, what he means here, and I think David had a really interesting comment about this, about how many of his friends who were criminals in high school ended up being uh, successful entrepreneurs. What, what Gerard's point here is that when you deal with people, uh, and this relates to the, the, the first point we said about you know, the children and why, why they desire the toy, um, you should not deal with them as if they were rational agents with clear uh, 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 you know, uh, goals or goods that they're trying to achieve, but, but trying to almost be like a psychologist uh, in, in, in trying to understand what social goods that they're trying to achieve. You know, I, I gave you one example already of how you know, often uh, investment decisions in private markets aren't, aren't really driven by the underlying fundamentals, but this sort of uh, sort of scarcity that the sort of the, the most uh, skilled operators are able to create. Um, but perhaps another example I can give you is you know, one, of, one of my friends runs a very successful buyout firm. Uh, and most of the time, it's not the economics that get the deal over the line. He's, he has to play psychologist, right? He has to understand what the founder is worried about or uh, how relativistically uh, these terms compare you know, with, this, with this model that this other founder is, is competing against. And so it's managing those expectations and, and fundamentally treating humans not as rational agents. I, I think that's what's been probably most insightful for me. It's really interesting to kind of think about this idea of um, maybe I'll call it the recipient, the person who is uh, susceptible to these forces. Uh, mm -hmm. Is it possible to be the person on offense, like rather than being the one that all of these forces are playing on to you, are there people who have mastered them to the point that they actually use them uh, to get what they want or use them to create a business or, or a product? You gave an example of kind of fundraising, but like, is that what Ferrari does, for example, or some of these other brands? They're basically taking these ideas, whether they realize it or not, and that's what's ultimately yeah. driving the value? Yeah, and um, I'm curious to hear what, an what David's answer here, but I'll do a first pass. I think Ferrari is a great example here because they have such a, uh, a acute awareness of how the people who own their cars, uh, independently of the, cars, it, the car itself, matters incredibly importantly to these brands, right? That's why Ferrari has like a war on influencers. <laughs> they don't want uh, people that they consider are not of a certain status uh, to own their cars. If you want to buy the Le Ferrari, you know, you have to have all these different, uh, different Ferrari cars there. So I think they have a you know, very acute awareness of the uh, importance of association and the people who are associated with your product just beyond uh, the product itself. Um, and the other example I'll give here, and this is one that Gerard often comes to, is in romantic life, in dating. And he says, narcissism is such a, a common strategy for both men and women to make them successful in dating, because narcissism fundamentally shows a very strong desire for yourself. And through mimesis, other people are forced to, to, to sort of copy that desire. And the idea goes something like, you know, if, if this person is so confident in themselves, then they must know something, uh, you know, or, or the converse, you know, if even he does not believe who, who he is and who he stands for, then why should I? Maybe, you know, maybe there's something, there's something lacking there. So there's definitely people and, uh, uh, who, who have 
uh, uh, use this to their advantage, uh, maybe without understanding the theory behind it. David? In the, in the lecture series that we just recorded, Jonathan gives a really good example of Michael Jordan and the whole Jordan brand. You know, if you go back to 1900 and you look at the advertisements, they're generally about the product. Oh, this soap will smell good, it'll clean your hands well. Or this basketball, it'll, it won't deflate very fast. And what happens beginning with the Mad Men era, post-World War II, mass media, is advertising shifts to associations. And if you think of Jordan shoes, they're not talking about the weight of the shoe, how much faster you're going to be able to run, how many more minutes you're going to be able to play on the court. They just say, be like Mike. Be like Mike is the most Girardian mimetic advertising slogan because you're just hanging somebody who becomes a mimetic model that a bunch of other people can imitate. And then you're using that model to sell your shoes. And that's why it's so effective. I used to wear Jordan shoes. I had the Steph Curry's, all that stuff because of the model. It, it's absolutely fascinating uh, to kind of analyze how history played out because of some of this. Um, I don't know if either one of you watched uh, the trilogy on Netflix uh, of Kanye West, um, and they've got a bunch of uh, content. And uh, I think, David, you, you, it looks like you watched it, and, and Jonathan, you didn't. But uh, for those that didn't watch it, uh, he pretty much, like early 20s, has a guy follow him around, and he's created a documentary. And this is not when, you know, social media is cool, documentaries are cool, like any of that stuff. And in the footage, uh, I took away three things. One was, uh, to Jonathan's point earlier about confidence, he knows he's going to be successful. And anyone who questions it, he basically is just done with them, right? So there's this, like, inherent confidence uh, bordering on narcissism and arrogance and, like, you know, all the, all the downsides of that level of confidence. But, but for sure that's there. The second thing is uh, the amount of peer pressure that he did not succumb to when you walk in at 22, you're a producer, you want to be a rapper, and you've got somebody following you with a video camera, and they're like, dude, what is this? And he's like, we're making a documentary. And they're like, no, you're not. Like, no one's going to watch that. But he continued to do it. And then the third thing, I think, is as he uh, recorded the content, as they did this and everything – he almost had this uh, um, kind of bifurcation or, or uh, move away from the confidence at some level. And so there was a guy who filmed with him for a decade. And then they lost touch for like six or seven, eight years, whatever it was. And then they got back together and then they created the documentary and like, here we go. But in the trilogy, they have like day by day for literally 10, 12 years and then they kind of like cut to like B-roll <laughs> for half a decade. And then they come, you know, they try to tell a story and then they come back. And so in some ways it feels like that really followed like his life journey as well. And in, in hearing you guys talk, it's like the cameraman was a proxy for confidence and like on the rise before kind of Kanye lost his way and then came back uh, was literally, was the cameraman with him or not? Right. Like, like it sounds like it's fitting a lot of these same ideas that John is talking about. One of the things that, is almost like poetic about Kanye, at least as a non-memetic figure, is that Kanye, the name, there's a line in that documentary that it is a mix of Ethiopian and French. 
And it actually means the only one, the only <laughs> one, as if he's sort of not imitating other people. Now, there's a lot about Kanye that is mimetic, but at the same time, there is a lot about him that is singular, that is distinct. And uh, I don't know, it'd just be really interesting to use that as a as an entry point into trying to figure out what are the mimetic parts of Kanye and what are the parts where he's really singular and one of a kind. Yeah, and, and maybe one thing I'll add here is a, is a warning um, because the, a popular misconception, I think, of Gerard's ideas uh, is that mimesis can only lend us, lead us to converge to the group. And so the idea goes that, uh, you know, sh surely if I break away from the group, if I carve my own path, then I will be authentic, then I will be an, an individual. And I think a lot of our artists today, and certainly our academics, and maybe Kanye, I don't know him too well, is susceptible of this. They simply do what the, 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 the crowd does not as a complete sort of 180. And Gerard calls that a form of uh, a negative mimesis. And actually the logic is very similar. In the same ways that uh, metaphysical desire, sort of mimesis, uh, wants to get the objects associated with people who we think are very prestigious, uh, Mimesis also leads us to try to stay away from objects associated with people who we think are not prestigious at all, at all right? We both want to wear the, the brands of the shoes that the cool kids are wearing in high school, but also make damn sure uh, that, that we don't wear uh, the brands of the, of the, of the social outcasts in, in high school. And so there's the whole set of phenomena, especially in the, in the, in the modern West, that so uh, heavily uh, emphasizes originality. That is a breaking of, away from the group for the group's sake. Um, that is just as uh, just as determined by, by the group and just as mimetic. So I think we should be careful of looking at Kanye and say, oh, he's doing all these things that differently and, and immediately conclude that he's sort of somehow independent from, from the group. Uh, I'm not saying he's not independent from the group, but I, I just I don't know him that well. Talk to me about the lecture series that you all uh, recorded. It's a seven-part series. Uh, I've started watching. I, I haven't had time yet to finish, but it is, uh, it's fantastic. Um, what was the, the general idea here? Uh, to go ahead and record this. Yeah, so, you know, it, it, re it really just came out of a passion project that I, that I pursued in, in college, essentially. You know, I was fascinated with Gerard's ideas. His ideas weren't being taught in the, in the academy, uh, certainly not in philosophy departments. So I had to, to, had to read all of his books and, and canon by myself and I had a few roommates who were also interested. And so that was quite fun. And, and, and so uh, on the side, while I was pursuing my CS and philosophy degree, uh, I, I basically tried to see if I could re-summarize and reconstruct uh, Gerard's argument. And the output of that was uh, this lecture series and another uh, sort of book length manuscript uh, that I'm still in the process of, of working on. So it was really out of, uh, uh, you know, just out of pure interest. And I often found the best way to understand these authors is to, is to reconstruct them. Uh, and so that was the, the, the major uh, driving force for me. Um, I was like, uh, you know, I, I just wanna really understand what, what this guy has to say. Um, and we actually had planned these lecture series to be filmed right when I graduated. I had everything done and finished, but then COVID hit. Uh, although David was very, uh, very persistent as he often is, he got some funding. He said, you know, Jonathan, I'll do all the post work, the, 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 the pre-work and I'll do all the marketing. So all you have to do is come out and, and, and to this beautiful hotel in Austin and, and give these lectures over three days. So that's what we did. I love yeah, it. For, for me, there's a, there's a bigger thing here. Um, <laughs> philosophy can be really boring to learn and it can just be all just riddled with jargon and complex. And when I was studying Gerard, it was really tricky to try to make sense of 
what he's trying to say. Gerard isn't super careful in how he thinks. A lot of his books, such as Battling to the End, are these dialogues. And I found that having conversations about Gerard was the best way for me to understand his ideas. And I would go on YouTube, I try to listen to podcasts. And so much of the philosophy, the liberal arts content on the internet is either very academic and dry or really high level and just a summary. And I looked at that and I've said, hey, we need really good accessible but comprehensive introductions to important philosophical ideas that don't dumb down the ideas that they're sharing, but still make them exciting and allow relevant people to understand them. And that's what we tried to do here. And then for me, Gerard's ideas were so transformative, so life-changing that it just feels like this needed to exist. It's like, I don't know, dare I say like you're called to do something. I don't think it was quite that much. And I think that there was a lot of circumstance where Jonathan and I were just like living in the same building in Austin, which made this a lot easier. Um, but I think that all those factors converged to make us say, hey, this is going to be worth a lot of work. Where did you guys film this? The The room is awesome. Uh, where, yeah, where was yeah. that? Oh my goodness, boy, is that a story. We looked for so many rooms and we, okay, so yeah, keep this photo on the screen. So we looked for so many rooms. We ended up filming it at the Commodore Perry estate in, in Austin. And we found this, this, this one suite that we really liked. And credit to Jonathan, that bookshelf was actually had a lot of little trinkets and was about a third of the way full with books. And Jonathan was like, nope, let's fill it up. Let's sort of change the room and, and do everything. Then we flew in a professional videographer who was fantastic. And we were then there for four or five days, um, just you know, on weekends and stuff like that. We, we, we did the filming. It, is, um, uh, it sets the scene. I think is the, uh, the, the way that I thought about it when I, uh, when I saw it. Um, let me ask you guys one last question. We did that. The reason that we did that, at least for me, is I think that, and maybe I'm being, maybe this is negative mimesis, but I think that the internet has become so casual. And, you know, if you think of people's home studios, you know, it's all very casual, uh, people wearing T-shirts and kids running in the background. And we wanted something that aesthetically screamed, hey, these ideas are really serious. I mean, we talk a lot about Gerard's ideas on the apocalypse. And we wanted to show, hey, this is well-produced. We put in a lot of work into this and something that would immediately just be jarring. And so that's why we came up with, with that aesthetic, at least on my end. Jonathan, I don't know. Yeah, if I mean, on, on my end, you know, it's just, it's quite a regular aesthetic. All, all my professors showed up in, in three-piece suits and, you know, we, we had that type of library setting. So for me, it was just a, a mere continuation of like, how do we recreate, uh, you know, uh, the environment I'm already somewhat familiar to in the academy. Yeah, it um uh there there is a importance of seriousness, right? Yeah. I think that um Catherine Boyle from Andreessen Horowitz, yeah. uh she recently wrote something about it. Um and uh there's a time and a place for it, obviously. Uh but these ideas are are pretty powerful. Um my last question for you guys is what is the one thing that you've changed in your life that has been most meaningful after doing a deep dive on Gerard and his ideas? Because there's something that you can point to and say, I did not do this or I did do this and I don't do it anymore once you understood uh, these ideas. 
David, you want to go first? Yeah, for me, it's really thinking carefully about the structures of different social relationships. A lot of Gerard's work is rooted in envy and how conflict emerges from sameness and when two people who are very alike are chasing the same thing. And when you run a company, you wanna make sure that everybody is responsible for specific things and that there's not a lot of overlap that could lead to mimetic envy and competition. In your personal relationships, you wanna think through how do you reduce that envy, reduce that sameness and tr like try to just build a culture of support, but then know that like there is gonna be an inherent competition and to just know that that's gonna be in sort of the underbelly of your life and be aware of it, that can really help. It's changed my views on marriage and dating quite a bit, but fundamentally it all comes down to this idea of people working on different things, moving towards different goals, and then deeply, so I work with a rabbi every week, and we've been deep in the Cain and Abel story, trying to figure out in those lines, what do they have to say about envy and violence and, re and reciprocity, how little acts of violence can spiral out of control, all that is in that story. And I think that Gerard, helped me appreciate Cain and Abel. And that Cain and Abel story is probably my favorite story in the world uh, in terms of how much it has taught me about what true human psychology is that's beyond the limits of what we can explain with reason. Yeah, <laughs> for me, um, it was more about, it's a very similar question, basically readjusting my, my, my social relations. Um, but it was more about owning up to the, think, the things that I thought I needed to disavow. And more specifically, what I mean by that is, you know, growing up in today's like self-help culture, you, you always hear this, you know, the subtle art of not giving a fuck, right? Or like, um, or, uh, you know, just, just, just be yourself or, or, or just, you know, just don't care what other people think. And I think Gerard showed me the extent to which we are social intersubjective creatures and that that is never a solution. This don't care about what other people think. That, that never works. And what you end up with is you end up wanting to portray yourself. Uh, you end up caring that other people th uh, think about you as someone who doesn't care what they, what they think about you. I don't, I don't know if that, that, that communicated properly. But the idea is like, if you just try to be an individual, you're going to be a caught up in, in that sort of negative mimesis that we taught, talked about. And so for me, it was you know, owning up to the fact that I needed uh, social support. I needed social recognition for these lectures. You know, I'm owning up to the fact that there's a large degree of self-promotion here, that I want these things to be viewed. And Gerard actually said, you know, don't trust any authors who say that they don't care if their work is read. They're either counting for apocalypse or posterity for revenge. And, and Gerard also says that also don't trust the people who, who advertise uh, that, that they really don't care what, what other people think about them because those people are, are probably the one who, who, who care the most and are, are trying, trying to hide it. So for me, it was really about being aware of how deeply uh, and, and inevitably my social environments affected me and then designing that social environment. For example, one of the reasons I had moved to Austin uh, was you know, I know I had one really good friend in David and I didn't really, really need any, any other friends because I was just working and then reading the whole time. And, and so, um, however, if, if David wasn't there, um, and I was just in that work environment, I know that my desire for philosophy would, would go down as well. 
And so it's, it's about, <coughs> excuse me, it's about being really aware of how your social environment affects you and then designing the right social environment for, for what you want to, uh, to achieve. Yeah. It, it, um, awareness goes hand in hand with seriousness, mm-hmm. right? Of, uh, you have to, uh, be aware to be serious, uh, to some degree, which ends up being a, um, uh, I think a lot about, uh, a lot of folks just exist. They just go through the motions, et cetera. It takes work to be aware. Uh, it takes work to be serious. Um, and, uh, it's not common, nor is it, uh, uh, something that comes easy. So I think that the uh, the work that you guys are doing is fantastic. Uh, I appreciate it. You're, you're going to steal a bunch of hours of my life uh, having me consume it. Um, wh- where can you we- uh, put some headphones on the baby and uh, get her to learn Gerard too? Uh, yeah, tr- trust me. We, uh, we we recently did a little happy feet introduction, the uh, penguins <laughs> that dance, and that was a game changer. Uh, so Gerard will, uh, will be on the docket maybe in a couple of years. Um, wh- where can we send folks to, uh, to go and, and consume this? Probably, um, the first, the first lecture. So I'll, I, I can happy to send the link either on, on this chat that you can blast out right now or, uh, later on, but, but, um, Jonathan at limbo on YouTube or GerardLectures.com. And if you go to GerardLectures.com, we will just send you an email as we publish every single lecture. Awesome. I, uh, I'm super excited. My last question for both of you is one of our sponsors is eight sleep. What is your sleep schedule having to put something like this together? You mentioned it took four or five days of filming, but the planning process had, you know, was definitely insane. Uh, yeah. even just, it sounds like finding the location was hard. What, what is we actually sleep have some good stories here when it comes to sleep. So first of all, Jonathan and I are both serial nappers. So it is 11.53 in the morning. I napped right before this so that I would be on. And I sleep on an eight sleep every night. And so I have that automatically set. And then what I always do with my eight sleep is I turn on negative four degrees about 30 minutes before I'm going to nap. And honestly, I, I, I really like that product because it allows me to have have my good naps, which I need every single day. And I know Jonathan does too. Like we turned off the lights and everything half, halfway through the day while recording these lectures. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I got, <laughs> I got the, uh, I got the aura ring here. So I'm a big uh, sleep fanatic as well. Anthony, I don't know if you're going to lose money for me saying this, but I actually use Uler, which is a competitive to, to competitor to eight <laughs> sleep, but I would have probably bought eight sleep. Um, here's me making your money back. Uh, if I had like a, if I didn't have a queen mattress already, although now I know that they have this sort of like cover system, but for me, it really is a life changer because I, I sleep super hot and I was waking up through the middle of the night and uh, my Uller, my sort of cooling system really helps me there. Um, there's actually a really fun story about the, uh, it's also a Girardian story as well, right. about the filming of these lectures. So these lectures, uh, each one, they, they cut, they're cut it down to about two hours each, but they take like four to four hours to film. So we had to get through 30 hours of filming and we had three days to do it. And, you know, I, I don't sleep that well. So I was super anxious in each day and I went to bed at 12 and I just found myself waking up at five. Uh, and so, uh, you know, obviously when you're sleep deprived, you're not, you're not on your A game intellectually. And so I had to sleep, like I had to nap every like two hours to make sure I was like on my A game. I was like a Navy SEAL or something. And the, 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 the most funny story was on day three, it was because of all the stress and the sleep deprivation I had these like terrible stomach stomach cramps, um, and and I wasn't sure if, if I were if I was going to be able to film on on day three, 
uh, which, which would have been terrible because the, you know, the hotel had rented the, uh, you know, the room out on, on day four. So we would have to have, have, have to, you know, take out all, all the supplies and we could get more funding and it would have been a nightmare. And so I wake up, it's like 6am. I'm just like curled up in a ball because of the pain. And then I just put on Michael Jordan uh, game six against, I think it was the Utah jazz. And I put on my Jordan 12s and I just repeated to myself, flu game, flu game, flu game, you know, which I suppose is, a, is an example of Mimesis working in, in the right direction. But eventually I, I managed, to, I managed to, to, to pull through it all. But if you notice me uh, in tremendous pain in the last two lectures, that's, that's what that is. I, I, uh, I love uh, understanding like, hey, here's what I can do to psychologically uh, manipulate myself into a place that I need to be. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly. awesome. Um, all right. Both of you, I appreciate it very much. This was uh, this was a lot of fun. Um, I highly suggest anyone who uh, hasn't uh, go check out the lectures. Uh, I'll be finishing them hopefully in the next week or so. Um, and uh, thank you guys for your time. Thank you Thanks, so much. Thanks, Bob. All right, see you guys later. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I really hope you guys enjoyed this one. Make sure you're subscribed on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. And if you're looking to try to transition to get a new job in the Bitcoin or crypto industry, we've got you covered. Head over to pompscryptocourse.com. We've developed a curriculum with the top teams across the industry. It's a three-week intensive training program with over 50 events packed into that three-week time period. Go to pompscryptocourse.com to learn more, and I'll meet you guys for the next episode.